Now take your Bibles and turn with me to Luke chapter 7, please. Luke chapter 7, our text is a little bit longer today than some of the texts that we've looked at recently, but it does hold together. And so we're going to be reading, uh, beginning in verse 18 and reading through to the end of verse 35 as Jesus uh, entertains a question from John and begins to speak of John to the crowds. Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 18, you can find that on page 863 in our ESVs. And before we read God's word together, please join me in seeking God's blessing through prayer. Let's pray. O Lord our God, we pray that you would speak to us through your word. It is living and active, it gives life as your spirit works through it, and so we pray uh, that you would cause us to receive with meekness your implanted word, able to make us wise for salvation. And so, Lord, we pray that you would do that work, a good work in us by your spirit and for your sake, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Here now God's word as we find it in Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 18. The disciples of John reported all these things to him, and John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? When the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour he healed many people of diseases, and plagues, and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed? Shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing. Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothes and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace calling to one another, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Ascends the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing to its reading, and to its hearing. Well, I struggle to think uh, if there is anything more useless than the leftover wrapper from an ice cream cone. You know what I'm talking about? Those, those brightly colored little paper liners, and especially around this time of the year, they have an American flag on them, and they, 
They guard your cake cone from your sweaty summer hands, and they serve a purpose for a while, but what do you do when you're done? And your chocolate fudge ripple has dribbled over the side, and you're, you're not even sure that you can recycle it. And it's like salt without its savor. It's good for nothing uh, but to head to the landfill. I wonder if there's anything more useless than, than those things. I have, uh, I have an internet friend. She's someone that I used to know in real life, but uh, long since uh, parted uh, ways. And, uh, but she's a person who is striving to live a zero-waste lifestyle. Maybe you know somebody like that. And maybe they also post on their social media about the, the strides they're making toward that goal, trying to get rid of everything, all these little scraps. And she's the kind of person who thinks about things like leftover ice cream cone liners and what do you do with these things. And she's arranging her life and she's trying to live and, and cook and shop in such a way that she gets rid of plastic bags and paper liners and boxes of tissues and anything uh, that's useless, anything that's simply headed for a landfill. And I suppose that's, that's a good endeavor. Uh, no judgment. Uh, that's what she's into. And I, I would like to think that I would want to contribute somewhat to that. But to be honest, it seems like a lot of work. <laughs> and, and I kind of like the convenience of single servings and, uh, and sanitary packaging. What that means is that each week, on Friday morning or Thursday night, we, uh, we drag our two garbage bins out to the curb, and they sit there bearing public testimony to all the scraps and all the pieces of things that we don't know what to do with, that we've accumulated throughout the week, and there they are, uh, showing all the leftovers uh, produced by our household. Where is this going? Well, as, as I read... <laughs> As I read Luke this week, I couldn't help but think about my friend uh, trying to live a zero-waste lifestyle and all the effort she puts into eliminating these leftovers and these scraps from her life. And the reason I thought of her is that because as I read this scripture, what I find is Jesus putting that same kind of sweat into the spiritual lives of his people. Just think about how cluttered your spiritual walk with the Lord gets on any given week. How many tiny scraps and leftovers of things that you don't know what to do with that begin to pile up and clutter your spiritual walk, your discouragements, your doubts, all of your misplaced expectations of what you think God ought to be doing for you, and all these soggy leftovers of human spirituality begin to pile up, and they begin to stink, just like garbage, and you don't know what to do with them. You prayed you prayed for something that the Bible told you to pray for, something good that you thought you ought to pray for, and hasn't the Lord told you that he will answer when we pray according to his word and in his name and by his will, and yet the Lord didn't answer. Not, not how you expected him to answer. Not when you expected him to answer. It makes you feel like a failure. A failure in prayer or a failure in faith, and, and sin tempts you to wonder if, if the Lord actually can be trusted at all. And what do you do with the leftover pieces of your unanswered prayers? Where do you go with your unmet expectations of what you thought God ought to be doing in your life? You could ignore them. You could wish that maybe like your trash bins, you could take them to the curb and pay somebody else to truck them away to a landfill somewhere so that you don't have to see them and you don't have to think about them and you can go back into your tidy little life. But that's not what happens. And they they pile up, and what are you going to do with all the leftovers in our walk with Jesus? I think what we see in this passage is that Jesus 
Jesus has a zero-waste policy for his children. He's the one that we can take all of our leftovers to, all of our doubts, all of our questions, all, all of our uh, disappointments and our, our misconceptions. He's the one that knows what to do with them. He's the one that can repurpose them into something good. And I think through this passage, what we see is that the Lord is inviting us to, to bring our doubts to him because he doesn't waste them. He doesn't waste the doubts of his people. We see the Lord dealing in that way with his cousin, John the Baptist. This passage begins with a question, and it's the kind of question that raises more questions for us when we read the question. And the reason is, uh, we get this question coming from John, verse 19, uh, calling two of his disciples. He sent them to the Lord, saying, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Well, what's the question that raises in our minds? Well, it's, what is John doing? Of all people, what is John the Baptist doing asking this question of Jesus. We know there was a lot of confusion in Jesus' ministry. It seems like even his disciples couldn't, couldn't quite grasp what Jesus was about. And you, you get that range everywhere from uh, the, the mother of the sons of Zebedee saying, you know, it, it probably would be a small thing, Jesus, for my boys to sit on your right and your left. And she, she didn't understand. She missed the point. You get that range from, from her all the way to Peter, who's bold enough to put his foot in his mouth. No, Lord, you'll never do that, you won't die at the hands of the Romans. That's not what this is about. Even, even after the resurrection, it's still happening, and the people, the disciples are gathered with the Lord, and he's ascending, and they're saying, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Is, is this finally, is this going to happen, what we've been waiting There's all kinds of confusion around Jesus and his ministry, but we think if anybody would be able to get it right, if anybody knows who Jesus is, it ought to be John the Baptist, Right? He saw the dove come down and rest upon Jesus. Jesus came out to be baptized, and he pointed to Jesus and told everybody else, look, there he is, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John knows, right? John should know if anybody would know. So why is John asking Jesus to confirm what we assume that he already knows about Jesus? Well, some people suggest that what John is doing is he's really asking this question not for his sake, but for his disciples. And he has an ulterior motive. He's setting up this conversation between him and Jesus, and, and he's preparing the way for, for him to decrease and for Jesus to increase, and he's getting his disciples to follow after Jesus. And I, I love that idea. The problem is it's not in the text. Well, what does the text say? Well, the text shows us that these disciples bring John's question. That's all we hear. They come, and it's actually repeated for us. It's strange that Luke would spend valuable space in, in wherever he was writing, some scroll, some papyrus, writing the same question twice, but he's pointing out this is John's question. John sent them saying. It's a small thing to, to say. John sent them to say. You, you just have to change the verb, but no, no, John sent them saying. That is, this is John's question. They come to Jesus. John wants to know, Jesus, are you the one who was coming? And and how does Jesus respond? Well, he speaks to John. You go back and tell John what you've seen, what you've heard. And blessed is the one, John, the one who's not offended, but me. Well, I think our initial reaction is to want to protect John. We want John to be the hero. We want to separate him from, from the possibility of human doubt. But instead, let's read what the text says. And it seems to show that John is having a hard time reconciling what he expected of the Messiah with what is actually happening and what he's seeing in Jesus. 
Jesus is raising widows' sons and healing centurion's servants. He's preaching, he's teaching, he's driving out demons. There's great acclaim. Jesus is the one who will feast with anyone who will invite him. And already, the disciples of John have been lumped together with the disciples of the Pharisees back in chapter 5 as those who fast. And Jesus is very different, and his disciples are very different. And everything that Jesus is doing gets back to John, and there he is in the prison waiting to see what will happen, and, and word comes back, and I think John says, huh, that's strange. You see, I, I know, I know that the Lord sent me out into the wilderness to prepare the way, and I could have sworn that Jesus was the one who was coming, and I, and I I told the people, there's one coming after me, right? He's stronger than I am. And I told them who to look for. I gave them very specific instructions. There's one who's, who's coming who's stronger than me, and he will baptize you with Holy Spirit and with fire. And his winnowing fork is in his hand. He's going to, to clear the threshing floor. He'll gather his wheat, and he will burn the chaff with unquenchable fire. I told them the axe is laid to the root of the trees, and all the unrighteous are about to be chopped up like firewood. That's what I told them. That was the message I proclaimed, and I could have sworn that Jesus was the one, but what happened to all the fire? <laughs> where's the axe? Where, where's, where's the fork? Where is, is the unquenchable wrath? Why is it that Jesus doesn't look like what I thought the Messiah would look? Maybe we call it an understanding, a misunderstanding. Maybe, maybe we call it, we go so far as to call it a doubt, but either way, John does the right thing with his questions about Jesus. What does he do? He doesn't pile them up in a corner somewhere. He doesn't hope that they'll just poof, disappear. John takes his questions about Jesus to Jesus. That's the right thing to do. John takes his questions uh, to Jesus. And that's the right thing to do because Jesus is the one who knows how to deal with our doubts. Notice what Jesus does in response. When the question came, Jesus continued doing what he had been doing all along. He healed, and he helped, and he ministered, and, and then he spoke. And he said, go and tell John what you've seen, what you've heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news, preach to them. Go tell John what you've seen and you've heard. Now that summary of what Jesus is doing, that ought to sound familiar to you if you've been with us for several months. It sounds very similar to the summary Jesus gave at the beginning of his ministry, back in the synagogue in Nazareth, where he was given the scroll of Isaiah, and he opened it to Isaiah chapter 61, and he began to say, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, upon me to proclaim and to preach and to recover, and, and, and the Spirit of the Lord is upon me for liberty, for favor. And it sounds similar, except this is just slightly different. And, and the reason that it's different is that Jesus here uh, is not quoting Isaiah 61. Instead, he's quoting about four or five uh, different texts, all from Isaiah, uh, that tell us what the reign of the Messiah is supposed to be like. What will we see? What will, what will we look for when the servant of the Lord shows up? Well, one good place to go, one of the texts Jesus is quoting, it seems, is Isaiah 35. We begin to read in, in verse 3, and this is what it says. Strengthen the weak hands, make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance and with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. That's what Isaiah says. He'll come with vengeance. 
cometh recompense. And then the very next verse tells us what this looks like. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. You see, what is Jesus doing? He's He's combing through other prophecies. He's pulling out references exactly suited to show John, this is who I am. This is who you should expect me to be. When we come to the Lord with questions about who are you and how are you working, what does Jesus do? He connects his life to God's word. And he sends it back. He doesn't, notice he doesn't finish the equation for him. He leaves it with the equal sign sitting out there, and he says, go tell him what you've seen, what you've heard, what I'm doing. Let John make his own conclusions. He connects his life to God's word, and he says, go back and tell him these things are being fulfilled. And that's significant because Jesus works with us in that way. When we have questions about the Lord, he takes us back to his perfect standard. That's the best place to go. The infallible interpreter, when we get caught up and say, I thought... I thought Jesus was supposed to do this. Why hasn't he? What, what's the best thing to do? Is the best thing to do is uh, go and sit in a corner somewhere and oh, thinking, thinking, have a poo moment, right? Winnie the poo just sits there thinking, thinking, thinking. No, no, no. It's to go back to the word. It's to go to God's word and say, well, who is Jesus actually? What, who have you shown him to be? What do I need to know about him? And I think... Jesus is calling John back to God's word. He's taking John's doubt, and he's using that as an occasion to press John deeper into faith. Even though John already knew it, even though he'd already heard it, Jesus is saying, consider again who I really am, what I've really come to do, and what God's word has really said about me. And don't you find this is precisely what you need when you are disillusioned by a version of Jesus that you've created in your own image. I am always amazed that Democrats seem to think that Jesus must have been a Democrat. Aren't you? I am equally surprised when Republicans think Jesus must have been a Republican. And if you're a socialist, you think Jesus would have fought the power. If you're a capitalist, you think Jesus must have stood up for the free market economy. And in a thousand different ways, it is far too easy to construct a Jesus that looks like us and has an agenda like us and loves all the things that we're about and makes us feel nice and cozy. And then we open God's word and we see him doing and saying things that don't fit in our nice, neat little box about who we think Jesus is. Isn't it easy to be disillusioned by who you thought Jesus was? And then to open God's word and to find that he's far better than you could have constructed in your mind. That he has an agenda all his own. Isn't it easy to go to the Lord and say, well, if Jesus really loves me, he will make sure that all my children are safe and healthy. If the Lord really loves me, he will make sure that I am married to a godly husband by the time I'm 30 or 40. 50? Anybody 50? If God cares about me, this is how it will show up. And you construct in your mind, this is what it will look like. If the Lord cares about me at all, he'll make sure that no one ever hurts me like that person hurt me way back then. He'll make sure that our Supreme Court goes in this way, that our nation never goes in that way. And you find out that the Lord has other plans for you, actually. And there are plans, like Jeremiah said, to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a future. Plans to give you a hope. But they're 
they're not plans like you expected sometimes. We expect the gentle hand of, of the loving father, and that's what we find, but oftentimes the gentle hand of the loving father is the one who disciplines his children so that we may share in his holiness. Very often God's agenda shows up in the stumbling blocks he puts in our way to loosen our grip on the image of Christ that we have created after ourselves, this, this sort of misconstrual of who he is and, and what we think he ought to be. And so that we'll go back to his word, so that we'll press deeper into faith and say, Lord, I need you to interpret yourself for me. This is the whole point of Luke's gospel. It's been a long time now since the fall when we opened up in the beginning of Luke's gospel in Luke chapter 1. But do you remember the opening? Theophilus, I'm writing these things to you so that you may have certainty about the things that you have been instructed. The things that you've heard about Jesus, you've heard rumors about him, you've been taught about him, but I want you to know about him, so I want to tell you about him. And the Holy Spirit inspires and he writes and he searches out according to all of these things and he lays it out in just the right way. Luke wants you to have certainty and he shows us now John late in his life, late in his ministry, and I think the Lord wants John to have certainty and the Lord wants you to have certainty. And so what does he do? He points us to his word. And he sends the men back, and he says, blessed is the one who's not offended by him. Not offended by Jesus. That is the real Jesus, not, not the one you imagine him to be. Blessed is the one who's not tripped up by finding his agenda better than the one you could have crafted for yourself. It's a blessing when we take our doubts, when we take our disappointments to Jesus, and we say, Lord, help me make sense of these things. That's what Jesus does. He never wastes his people's doubts. He uses them as an occasion to draw them deeper into faith in who he really is. That's our first point. It's already over. We're not, we're not starting. We're ending the first point. That Jesus uh, uses our doubts to drive us deeper into faith. But secondly, we see that Jesus is able to turn our doubts into doxology. In the next few verses, Jesus continues to deal with questions and misconceptions, except they're not misconceptions about who he is, what he's come to do. They're misconceptions about who John is. You can imagine how John's imprisonment shook the people who thought so much of him. Here was this powerful man. He seemed unstoppable out there in the wilderness preaching repentance and people were coming out and they were cut to the heart and it was as if the axe was already laid to the root of the trees because we're seeing proud people falling left and right. We see him preaching repentance from the desert to the throne room even to Herod Agrippa and he went to Herod and he said, you need to leave off your unlawful incestual marriage. He spoke truth to power. Herod had, had married uh, the ex-wife of his brother Philip and and his, the ex-wife of his brother Philip actually was also his niece. So there was all sorts of levels of weirdness going on. And John went to him and, and he spoke to him, you need to leave this. And people were impressed with John. He didn't kowtow to anybody. He didn't just lay down and let people walk all over him. He's a, a strong man and yet here he is. He seemed like such a promising messenger of the Lord. But there he is and he's rotting in prison over there. And Jesus is proclaiming what? Liberty to the captives. Wait a minute. And there's a perplexity about it all. One of these things is not like the other. Maybe they remembered Psalm 146. The, the Lord, 
executes justice for the oppressed. He gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoner free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. That's what they know from God's word. God loves the righteous. And so what are we to think about John? Maybe he's not the righteous man we thought he was. What's he doing languishing in prison? This is the same thing that people said about Paul, by the way. He's not an apostle. Do you see the way he's suffering? God doesn't treat his apostles that way. And they begin to wonder. It sounds a lot like what Jesus is up to, sight for the blind in, in Psalm 146, freedom for the captive in Psalm 146. So why is John still in the clink? And so uh, verse 24, Jesus steps in and says that when John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out to see, he says. What attracted you in the first place? Well, why did you go? Some of you spent days walking out into the wilderness to hear a man speak and to receive the waters of his baptism. Why did you go out there in the first place? Did you just go to see a reed blown about in the wind? You know how it goes. You can see reeds anywhere. The, the breeze blows this way, and it blows that way, and there goes the reed, and whatever way the, the prevailing winds blow, it's just swaying in the wind. Is that John? Is that what you went out to see? No, that's not John. He's not so easily swayed. He's not out there tickling ears with pop psychology. He's not just out in the wilderness telling people what they want to hear. He's got this bold message. All right, well, what did you go out to see? Did you go out to see uh, some, some dandy boy, some, uh, some person dressed in soft clothing? A real fashion model, is that what you wanted to see? Well, that's not John. Can you imagine John showing up at, at Herod Antipas' garden party? And they're all the debutantes, they're, they're all the courts, uh, court people, and they're, they're dressed in their linen and, and their finery and their gold, and their noses and their pinkies are in the air. And here comes John, clothed in camel's hair, you brood of vipers. And he shouts over all of the polite conversations that are happening uh, about what's happening in this quarter of the empire, in that quarter of the empire. You brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the wrath? That's not John. He doesn't use his skill, his influence to live the good life. He's a, he's a hard-nosed man. He, he, he knows what it is to live the rigorous life. Well, well, what then? What did you expect of John? Did you go out to see a wild-eyed prophet of God? There it is. An unflinching mouthpiece of God's justice. Well, exactly, Jesus says. John was a prophet, and he was a prophet, and then some. Not just a prophet, not just any prophet. The prophet. John was the prophet, and he was the prophesied. He was the messenger the Lord promised to send. He was a preacher of God, and he was also the sent of God. He wasn't just any prophet. And so no matter what his ministry turned out to be, no matter uh, what he may have been suffering now at the end, he was a man who was used of the Lord. He was preparing the way, ushering in, a new kingdom of God's people. And so Jesus is still dealing with doubts. They're misplaced expectations about how does God work in the world? What does he do? Who are the people that he sends? What is the message that he wants to go out? Does the Lord send his messengers to preach repentance like John or to preach forgiveness like Jesus? Although I believe you know, that's a false dichotomy. Jesus preached repentance as well. But they seem so different, and the people are wrestling. Which one is right? Does the Lord send his prophets to call people to mourn over sin, or does he send his servant to break bread with sinners? And the answer is yes. 
God is zealous for both of these things. Repentance and forgiveness. The God of righteousness is the God of forgiveness. The Lord of the law is the God of the gospel. And Jesus is validating John's ministry, and he's doing it in such a way that he would remind us that the necessary preparation for forgiveness is repentance. You cannot have one without the other. That's the way God works. That's what he's telling us. John was the necessary smelling salt to wake up a slumbering nation who thought very little of their sin. And he went out and he shook them with the reality of their need for God's mercy. I have another friend who's a pastor down south. And he tells me that the problem with ministry in the south is that before you can get people saved, you have to get them unsaved, right? What he means is there, there's still such a, a, a nominal cultural Christian influence that people presume upon their, their Christian lives, forgiveness in the Lord, but they've never really thought about the sin in their lives. They've never really repented. Their repentance has never cost them anything like John earlier in chapter 3 said repentance ought to be visible and it ought to show up. And, and so they need a John before they can come to Jesus, my friend would say, I think. They need to wail and mourn over their sin before they can rejoice in their salvation. We take a much different angle in post-Christian New England, but it's the same process. You must know your sin before you can see the Savior. Jesus is reminding the crowd that this is the way that it works. Don't think little of John, I think he would say in his preaching, just because something new is here. Don't forget that he was God's prophet. The Lord sent him in to proclaim sin and judgment. Don't don't think less of John just because there's a different paradigm. But then again, don't, don't think too much of John. John wasn't the point. He says, among those born of women, that's a, that's a pretty broad statement. That includes everybody. <laughs> among those born of women, there is none greater than John, Jesus said. Nobody. In, in human terms, just evaluating your, your, uh, your CV, if you could put out your resume, who, who's the greatest? Well, John is, Jesus would say. He's, he was more steadfast than Elijah. He was a better preacher than Amos. He was, he's more impressive than Isaiah. He's a better orator than Churchill. He's more peaceful than Gandhi. He was greater than all the kings and all the popes and all the emperors the world over. And a great part of that greatness of John had to do with John's placement in history because he was God's, God's prophet on the cusp, right on the edge. He was the one bringing in the fulfillment of the kingdom. Jesus came right on his heels, and so he's, he's great because of where he was placed. But Jesus says, actually, there's something greater than being greatest. What is it to be greater than the greatest? Well, it's to be a part of God's kingdom. Among those born of women, there is none greater than John. But I tell you that the least in God's kingdom is greater than John. I wonder if you've ever stopped to consider that statement. Jesus wasn't saying that John was an unbeliever. He was just saying that he was one untimely born. He was the last great prophet of the Old Testament time. And he believed in Jesus. I think he heard again uh, that Jesus was the one who was coming. He was the prophet sent into the world, but he died before he saw the fulfillment of these things that he proclaimed. In his lifetime, John, for all of his wisdom, for all of the spiritual influence, 
never saw the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. John never watched the, the kingdom of God, the church of Christ, grow and fill the world and call in people from every tr- tongue and, and tribe and nation. John never saw these things. John knew that God would forgive the sins that he was warning about, but I don't think he knew exactly how. He, he heard again here that Jesus was the Savior, but he didn't know how Jesus could save. But you know. You know what John didn't know. The least in God's kingdom. Maybe it's you. Maybe it's me. Maybe it's the children as they sit in the Sunday school classes with their coloring pages and they learn about Jesus who died and was raised again on the third day. Something that John never saw for all of his greatness. And Jesus says, there's a greatness here. There's a blessing that John couldn't have imagined. And yet, yes, John was used of God, you see. Just the right time to open the doors for Christ to come into the world. Now, it seems like a long time in coming, but in verse 29, Luke interrupts all of this teaching that Jesus is giving about John and what the Lord was doing in the preparation of repentance. Luke jumps back into the narrative, and he interrupts to tell us what Jesus was doing with all these doubts about John. What was he doing? Well, he was turning them into doxology, praise, speaking well of what God has done. That's what Jesus did. You want to know about John? Let me tell you about John, and this was the response. We see verse 29, when all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, the worst of the worst in that society, the the people that were Jews who aligned themselves with the Romans against their fellow countrymen, even the tax collectors, when they all heard this, they, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. That's a strange phrase, that they declared God just. Literally, if you've got the King James in front of you, they justified God. Right? It's, a, it's a declaration. Now, it doesn't mean that they, they made God righteous by their declaration. That can't possibly happen. But it, it means simply that when they heard about God's plan, what he was doing through John, this, this paradigm of repentance and forgiveness, of, of preparation and salvation, when the people heard of this, all those who, who went out said, yes, that's, that's just, that's the way God works. They began to speak good things about what God was doing, even though they may have at some point had a misconception, had some doubt, what is God doing? He doesn't look like he's working the way that that I think he ought to work. And Jesus opens it up and he says, this is what he's doing. And they, maybe even just in their hearts, they began to justify God. They said, yes, I agree. God is righteous. God is the one who calls sinners to repentance. He's the one who saves the humble. God is the one who justifies the ungodly, and I think this is an invitation. Do you doubt what the Lord can do? You look at your own life and say, I I wonder, all this repentance and, and forgiveness, I wonder if this is really true. I think this is an invitation. If you have doubts, come and see. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Come and receive and rejoice. Who were the ones who justified God? Who were the ones who had their doubts turned into doxology? Was it the ones who said, we don't need any of that? We're fine on our own. No, no, no. God wouldn't accept us. Are you kidding me? No, no, no. He doesn't want me. Neither of those extremes. Who were the ones who justified God? They were the ones who identified with repentance. Said, Yeah, I, wow, I need what the Lord is giving here. And their doubts became praise. And there were others. And Jesus said they rejected God's purposes. 
There were others that said, I don't need that. I, I'm doing just fine. I've read the instructions. I've, I've got my works. I can create a righteousness on my own. Thank you very much. And he says that they rejected God's purposes for salvation. But not the sinners. Not the tax collectors. They didn't reject God's purposes. They received God's purposes. Those who knew their sin, knew how much they needed from the Lord, they justified God, they praised His way of righteousness, and it's an invitation. Jesus has been dealing with misconceptions and doubts about who He is and doubts about how God works, and all along He's inviting doubters to come to Him. He's inviting doubters to bring their questions, to bring their circumstances, and their disappointments, and their sin. Because Jesus is the only one who's able to do something with them. He's the one who uses doubts to call us deeper into faith. He's the one who turns our doubts into, into doxology. And he's calling you today to be like the crowds, to be like the tax collectors. Be like John, who wasn't afraid uh, to ask Jesus to reveal who he really is, to take his doubts straight to the source. It's an invitation to taste and see that the Lord is good, to come and receive food for your souls, to have your doubts and your questions answered by the one who can do something with them. So we've seen here that Jesus turns our doubts into deeper faith, and he, he turns them into doxology, but the passage ends with a warning. There are some doubts that will never be answered. There are some doubters that will never come to ask. And there are some doubts that end only in destruction. That's the way it is. Jesus says there are some people that are more satisfied with the doubts that they can hold on to about Jesus than actually going and seeing the way that Jesus will answer those doubts and those misconceptions. They're fickle. <laughs> They're like children. Sitting in the marketplace, he says. Verse 32, we, we played the flute for you and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge and you didn't weep. They're like children who can play no matter what game you play. Hey, you guys want to play wedding? It'll be great fun. I've got my pipe and I'll, I'll play a tune and you, you two, you walk down the aisle, we'll all dance and we'll sing, we'll have a great time. And the answer comes back, I don't want to play wedding. That's too happy. I hate, I hate happy games. I don't want to do that. Ugh, wedding. All right. Let's play funeral. I'll, I'll play low and slow and sad, and you, you do this thing, and you walk around, and we'll all weep, and we'll have great fun. It'll be this sad sort of thing. I don't want to play funeral. I don't like to play sad games. I don't want to do that. Kids are like that. Dad, I'm bored. I'll go play outside. I don't want to go play outside. I'm bored of outside. We'll go build Legos. I don't want to build Legos. What do you do? I go for a walk. Ride your bike. Clean the bathroom. I'll find something for you to do. And the kids, no, I don't want, I don't want to do any of those things. I'm bored. And it seems sometimes kids just want to keep being bored so that they've got something they can complain about so they can say, I'm bored, 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 bored. Jesus says there are unbelievers that are just like this. They don't really want their doubts answered. The problem is not that Jesus came in the wrong way or John came in the wrong way. The problem is that as so long as you can hold on to those doubts and you can convince yourselves that, that those doubts are just plausible enough that they can be the obstacle between you and Jesus, then you can also convince yourself that all this sin and salvation stuff, it has nothing to do with you and you have an out. Let's play funeral, John says. Let's learn repentance. 
I, I don't want to do that. I hate that game. Two people went up to the temple to pray, Jesus said. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tithe of all that I get. And John came saying, let's learn repentance. I don't need any of that. Thank you. And because they wouldn't engage with John, because they wouldn't come to repentance, they're completely unprepared for Jesus. There are unbelievers who are like that. You speak to them of sin. You speak to them of, uh, of repentance, and they say, that's the problem with you Christians. You've got this idea that everybody's messed up, that we're all, we're all screwed up in the head somewhere, and what we need is something else, that we're all terrible sinners deep in our hearts, and I don't buy it. I think it's a bunch of hooey. And so, okay, well, let's talk about forgiveness. Let's talk about joy. Let's talk about new life. You Christians are out of touch. You think you can just believe in somebody you've never met, and poof, all of your, all of your problems will vanish. That's not how life works. There are issues here that need to be resolved. And they don't want to play funeral, and they don't want to play Wedding, and, and what is it? Well, they, they just want to hold on. And they're just never satisfied. And it's not because Jesus or John had the wrong approach. John came fasting. He came abstaining from wine. And they said, that guy is weird. He's probably got a demon. He's probably insane. He, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't talk to John if I were you. Okay, Jesus came eating and drinking, partying with anybody who would invite him. Sinners, tax collectors, prostitutes, doesn't matter. He'll go, he'll show up. You want somebody to, to show up at your party, invite Jesus, he'll be there. What'd they say? Man, that guy's like a wino or something. He should be more discriminating about the company he keeps. He hangs out with sinners. That's kind of the point. But they weren't able to see it. They were dissatisfied because they just wanted to hold on to their doubt. It was more important to them than any way that Jesus could answer their misconceptions, and Jesus is giving a warning here. You've heard the invitation. Come to him with your questions. And beware that impulse that says, no, 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 I, I've got to hold on to this doubt. I can't, I can't go to Jesus with my doubts about Jesus. I've got to hold on to this because this keeps me at a safe arm's distance. And Jesus says, some doubts that will just end in destruction. There's some that, that refuse God's purposes for themselves because they'd rather have their doubts. Don't follow that. Don't lead in that direction. Dear friends, if you have doubts about Jesus today, if you are struggling with misconceptions about how God works in his people, don't ignore those doubts. Don't feed them. Don't, don't make them their, your little pet that you want to grow in this thing that makes you unique within the church. Oh, I'm a, I, I've got questions that the church can... No, no, no. Don't, don't do that. That seems cool in some quarters, especially when you're young, to be sort of edgy and doubting. That's not, that's not what we do. Jesus is inviting you to come with your doubts. Don't pretend that they're not there, and maybe they'll go away on their own. Submit your doubts to God's Word. Take your doubts to Christ. He's the only one who can do something with them. And Jesus never wastes the doubts of his children. Let's pray. 
Oh, Lord our God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for Christ our Savior. We thank you that over these past months we have walked with him through the gospel of Luke. As we break uh, for the summer and look at the Proverbs, we pray that Jesus would never be far away from our minds and our hearts. Oh, Lord, we pray that we would still walk with him and, and he with us, that you by your spirit would work in us, that you would soften our hearts to come to Jesus with all of our doubts, that you would continually restructure our understanding of who he is according to your word and not according to our own desires, the things that make us feel comfortable where we already are. But, oh, Lord, help us to submit to Christ. Drive us deeper into faith in him, oh, Lord. Give us, give us words of praise for you. Keep us from the path of destruction. Help us to rejoice in Christ our Savior, even today as we come to his table, as you feed us by his sacrifice. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.